0: Hello, and welcome to Beth De Kuhn and this series called Spiritual Seasons. In this series, we are exploring how each Torah portion fits into the bigger pattern of salvation in the year. This week, we are in the double portion, Behar, Behukotai, Leviticus 25 to 27, which is the last three chapters of the book. Before we get to the portion, let's spend a minute reviewing an idea from last week's teaching. In Parsha Emor, we looked at how the second half of Leviticus (coughs) starts building from the low place of the Metzorah, the leper, like we're climbing a mountain or climbing out of a pit. Right after the Metzorah, we have the answer to the uncleanness problem of the Metzorah, the Yom Kippur service, which is the center of the book of Leviticus the answer to the separation of the metzora who has to live outside of the camp, is Yeshua's sacrifice and his presentation of his blood in the heavenly holy of holies as a covering for us. From that point onward in Leviticus, the text emphasizes the idea of holiness, what holiness looks like. Some even call these chapters the holiness code. Leviticus 19 contains an important verse you know related to this holiness code it reads speak to all the congregation of the people of israel and say to them you shall be holy for i the lord your god am holy in the final chapter of leviticus we actually see the word kadosh holy 12 times although a couple of those times it's actually translated as sanctuary it's the same word And uh, these chapters of Leviticus, this second half, are like God holding up a mirror to us and saying, this is what you're really like on the inside. Your essence is love for me and for your neighbor. In the middle of this holiness picture, we have Amor's focus on the critical roles of the priesthood and the appointed times, the Moedim, um, critical in the life of holiness and that was last week. So these are both grand connecting points and are critical, like I said, in the holy life. And this all leads us to this week's double portion, Bahar Bahukotai, where we're reaching the top of the holiness mountain. Part of the reason I'm using this language of climbing the mountain is that the name Bahar actually means at or in the mountain, or some translations say on the mountain. Behukotai is usually translated in my statutes. The two main topics of Bihar, which is one long chapter, are the Shemitah year and the Jubilee. The Shemitah year is the seventh year rest for the land in which crops are not sown or harvested, though the people can eat what comes up on its own. They just can't harvest the fields or vines all at once. You can't go out and do a big harvest or or harvest the grapes. Um, But if it comes up, you're welcome to go out and get it when you need it. So anyone can go out into the fields, actually, and in the vineyards and get what they need, including the animals. And so elsewhere... In the Torah, we read about how debts to fellow Jews are canceled at this time. Every seven years, debts to fellow Jews are canceled. The Jubilee, which is the next topic, happens after seven Shemitah years or seven cycles of seven. So the 50th year, the year after these seven cycles are completed, is the special Jubilee year called the Yovel in Hebrew, Yovel. Yovel is the word for a ram's horn trumpet, a shofar. On the day of atonement in the 50th year, Israel is to sound the shofar and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. The verse continues, it shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. When the jubilee is announced, if you had to sell the right to work your land, that right is returned to you so that you can now work your own land again. Additionally, Hebrew servants are released. Now the seventh year shemitah involves forgiveness of debt, but the 50th year jubilee is greater when the servants are released and properties are returned to their owners other topics in Bahar include treatment of the poor and redemption of a poor person. The last two chapters of Vayikra, Leviticus, are portion Bahukotai. Chapter 26 contains blessings for walking in Adonai's statutes and curses incurred if we spurn his commandments. The blessings and curses seem to be why the Haftarah in Jeremiah was chosen to accompany this portion, as the Haftar also has blessings and curses. In the last chapter of Vayikra, chapter 27, we have laws of vows that require the valuation of people. Um, This kind of person is valued at so many shekels of silver. Um, Also the valuation of clean and unclean animals, and the valuation of houses and fields. And so we'll talk about that topic later. Let's do some work now to place these portions in the flow of the calendar in the preceding portions. Now, we already mentioned the idea that these portions are bringing us to the top of a portrait of holiness. God is extending this picture to us in preparation for a new work in us at Shavuot, right? He's showing us that mirror. He's encouraging us, inviting us to examine ourselves according to it see how we're measuring up. He's running through a checklist of sorts to help us to see what areas are still particularly missing the mark. And so he's helping us to get excited too for our next meeting with him. Let's ask now what the Shemitah year and the Jubilee have to do with reaching the top of the mountain, like the name Bahar implies in the mountain. Let's start talking about this mountaintop by realizing that Bahar is the 32nd portion. Rabbi Alon Anovah says that for this reason, some call Bahar the heart of the Torah because 32 is the number of Lev, heart. So what is the heart of the Torah? Again, Bahar is only one long chapter dealing with the Shemitah and Jubilee, and kindness to the poor. Supporting a brother who becomes poor, not charging interest on a loan to a brother. If a brother becomes too poor and must sell himself, don't make him a slave, but allow him to be a servant until the jubilee, when he's set free. If a brother sells himself to a foreigner, he may be redeemed, bought out of that situation. And if he's not redeemed, he and his children are released in the year of Jubilee. So these are all the commandments regarding a poor brother or just not um, loaning at interest to anyone. Well, what do you do when you get to the top of a mountain? Well, you do two things. First, you stop and you rest. And second, you take in the view, the higher perspective, the perspective from above let me suggest that these two ideas are also the emphasis of Shemitah and Jubilee. First of all, both are obviously about rest. The Shemitah year is a year of rest for the land, but also for the farmer who can rest from working the land. The Jubilee is not um, only also about rest. It's about the rest that comes with freedom from servitude, the rest that comes when the weight of difficulties are lifted off a person's shoulders. And like we said, it's a year of rest for the land too. So actually at the time of the Jubilee, the farmers will not work the land for two years straight. The 49th year being a Shemitah, one of the multiples of seven, And the 50th year being the Jubilee, when they're told to not work the land. So they have to trust God in the 48th year for enough harvest to last them until the harvest uh, of the 51st year. We work with the goal in mind of a rest to come. We do not work for the sake of work. We understand that the fullness of life means that we have to take full advantage of the time given to us to acquire and shape and become, so, and you know, become so that we can enter into the reward of rest with God, having attained a depth of relationship with God through all of that work, right? We're, we're doing all this work for relationship with him, and then we enter into the rest of the bride, the rest that the bride can have with her groom. Beyond rest, how are the Shemitah and Jubilee about a higher perspective, right? We climb to the top, we rest, and we take in the perspective. How is our perspective reoriented? Well, I want to focus this idea mostly on the Jubilee. In the Parsha, there's much about calculating the value of service or land based on the number of years until the jubilee. In other words, if a person has sold himself into servitude, he can pay his way out if he reimburses his master for the number of years of service left until the year of jubilee, at which point he would have been able to go free. So if there's 10 years until the jubilee and I want to go free now, I have to pay my master for 10 years of my labor. And it's the same with redeeming back the use of one's land. The law of the Jubilee changes our perspective radically. It means that we can never permanently sell ourselves or our land. It means that the default position is that I am both a free person and a landowner. And the land is the source of most wealth. So any fall from that position is only temporary it means that my essential identity is free. Selling yourself as a servant can only be done with the day of freedom in mind. One eye is always on the next approaching jubilee. So life is recast from I'm stuck, I'm trapped, I'm constricted, I'm a slave forever, I'm not my own, to I'm free. And even if I might temporarily find myself in servitude, I'm free. My core identity is of a free person. So it reminds me of the way Shabbat can start to reorient our perspective on the week. In Jewish thinking, the first six days are named according to their relationship to the Shabbat. Sunday is one day to the next Shabbat. Monday is the second day to Shabbat, and so on. Everything is looking toward the Shabbat. And if you get really good at the Shabbat, which I'm afraid I'm not quite yet, but you'll arrange your week such that everything is ready for Shabbat. maybe invite people for air of Shabbat by Tuesday, shop for Shabbat on Wednesday, clean the house on Thursday, cook on Friday, some kind of schedule like that, but it's all you know it's all with Shabbat in mind. My point is that the worship and study and rest and relationship of Shabbat become the center point about which the other days arrange themselves. And this is what the Jubilee does for a person's time of servitude and the sale of one's land, two of the most important aspects of life. The forgiveness of debts every seven years with the Shemitah also reorients humanity's perspective on loans, and that's another big part of life. When life is just working to stay alive, it becomes tedious and life-draining. But when our perspective is reoriented toward working toward a rest in him, a resting with our creator and the lover of our souls, it's a very different experience. One way the Jubilee can help to reorient our perspective is in the knowledge that God has made an allowance for us to be freed from the consequences of the poor decisions we may have made or the poor decisions others made that have affected us. In God, through the Messiah, we bid goodbye to that person who made those decisions. Gone. He's gone or she's gone. You may be dealing with some practical issues related to those decisions now, but get your perspective right. Inwardly, You are already at the Jubilee. You are already free. Stop beating yourself up over those mistakes. Our God is a God who wipes the slate clean now and then. And count yourself rich. The riches you carry away with you from that place of confinement and slavery are vast. You take away with you a kind of humility and a willingness to forgive others as you have been forgiven. You take with you the ability to reach others still stuck in that place from which you have been freed. God has placed limits on the fall. He has limited how long we are allowed to fall into constriction. He has limited the reach of the world. The ways of the world are passing away. I know they seem strong and seem to be getting stronger by the day, but these are just stages leading to the rest the world that is coming, the seventh millennium, when the Messiah will reign from Jerusalem, right? The Shabbat of millenniums. And so this is a whole different perspective on life. We could be stuck forever in our mistakes, the consequences of our mistakes, or we can live life knowing, no, I I don't have to be stuck in the shadow of those mistakes forever. Our God resets the stage every now and then. So this idea of reorienting our perspective is one of the benefits of studying the calendar and God's plan for our growth in him. By studying the calendar, we see the goals that we're coming to, the milestones each season is aiming toward. The year becomes more than time passing in our bodies, just getting older until we die we see that we're attaining new levels of maturity. And each of those levels brings a deeper level of rest with it. Right? It's important to study the calendar so that we can have a perspective on why we're going through all these steps and where we're moving from and to. Well, the Shemitah and the Jubilee are very different from the ways of the world. There's a stark contrast here between God's ways and man's ways. There's a word that is used repeatedly in this chapter that speaks to us of the ways of the world. The word in Hebrew is peric or beperic. It's sometimes translated as ruthless or harsh or severe. God says three times in this Bahar chapter, do not rule over each other ruthlessly. So ruthlessness is indeed The way of the world. People get fired unfairly all the time. Companies turn a blind eye to how their products get produced by grinding workers into the ground sometimes, or they don't care that their products are hurting people because of what they contain. It's not my problem, is the way of the world. I can't afford to get involved, is the way of the world. Dog eat dog is the way of the world. God says, that might be their world, but it's not your world. Right? It's talking about the Shemitah and it's talking about the Yovel, the Jubilee. So I watched a good bit of the coronation of the new king and queen of Great Britain, and I was fascinated. I mean I guess I'm a, a fan of Britain and and the royals and, and all that comes with it. Um I was just fascinated, and it also made me think of this portion in a couple of ways. So it's a marvel to see such an elaborate ceremony, having survived into the 21st century. Everything about it was the best that a people had to offer in that moment, and that's such a lovely thing to see, that many people doing their absolute best all together with such order and and precision, And, and the populace, too, he didn't have a an immediate role, coming out to support their king and standing in the rain. Was just as everybody was working together and for one good cause that day. The guests arrived in their perfectly fitted suits and dresses. The soldiers' uniforms were immaculate. The horses perfectly decked out. The ceremony itself was flawless. And so everything was just arranged perfectly, and you just can't help but feel like this is how we're supposed to work together. (laughs) But I couldn't help but notice how the modern world was impinging in a sad sort of way on this moment. King Charles III and Queen Camilla seemed kind of boxed in. I know partly that's just British society and British ways, but they seemed... Especially tied to the script, and not just literally, but to the point that they had to very carefully maintain their facial expressions with a kind of a blank look almost. There was hardly a smile. And on the one hand, it's very appropriate for the moment, which was quite solemn, serious, and also had certain legal formalities that had to be done with accuracy, right? He had to say those words accurately. But on the other hand, A king brings a personality to his service of the nation, and this is part of what God has given that king, and so you kind of want to see that too in the moment, but I think the unfortunate truth is that if the king and queen had dared to allow their personalities to show a bit more, there would have been a thousand critics jumping up to tear them down instantly. This is the ruthless way of our world more than ever, this critical spirit. I mean, you just kind of had the feeling that they had so many critical eyes on them that they just, they couldn't put one word wrong or one foot wrong in the ceremony, even though it was beautiful and it was still something to be admired and enjoyed. But you could see that they felt the weight of literally billions of judges you know, sitting on their shoulders in that moment, and they knew that any deviation would be criticized harshly by someone who thinks they know better. And so this lack of generosity to our fellow men has never been more true in human history than now, at least I imagine so, When when our technology has brought the world together as never before, and everyone can just click do a little bit of tapping and share their opinion, right? And people see it. People see their opinion. A billion people can watch a coronation with our technology and they can all comment, you know. It has made a fallen world move even more in the direction of its fallenness, I'm afraid. In a way, it's maybe part of God allowing the fallen world to experience itself to its greatest degree and the venom pours in from every corner. We jump to criticize and we have whole industries who love to criticize and who don't make money unless they are criticizing. And so in an environment like this, what what is best for the new king and queen is to simply be statues. Give the critics as little fodder as possible to work with. And it's a shame, I think, Grant spent some time in in his Parsha Seasonings video this week, dwelling on a special word from chapter six, the word "kari." One place it's used is in verses 23 to 24, where God is in the midst of describing the curses and punishments for not walking according to His commandments. So this would be chapter 26, verses 23 to 24, I think. Uh, the passage might be translated like this. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, so obviously God is talking to them, talking about what he's going to do if they don't follow his commandments, and he says, if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk casually with me, then I also will walk casually with you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. Now Grant says that God uses this word karee or casually to say if you treat me as an afterthought these are my words describing what he said if you treat me as an afterthought I'm going to likewise fill your life with an abundance of coincidence catastrophic coincidence basically you'll say I can't believe this event happened followed by this event which made this other thing happen and now everything's a mess You know, it all looks like coincidence. You know, if you treat me with um, coincidence, if you treat me casually, then I'm going to treat you with a kind of casualness that makes it look like coincidence is completely messing up your life. If we obstinately set our path in a contrary way, he'll take that same path and twist it so hard that we are undone by it. And at that point of undoing, we have a chance to humbly bend the knee and submit to him and his ways. That's what's happening in our world today. God is taking that obstinate path and absolutely twisting it to its bitter end, its comical end. And the world is tearing itself to pieces. And in truth, None of us are without blood on our own teeth. We are treating each other harshly, and this has become normal for us. And I'm convicted myself in saying these things. We can do better. As God twists the path of the world into itself, let's hold ourselves far, far away from that, right? It's not okay. We must protect ourselves against the spirit of criticism, that has taken hold of our world. When it comes to matters of truth, we are uncompromising and even vocal, right? We don't compromise that message. In other areas, give a person the benefit of the doubt. Build up where you can. Watch for the good and praise it. Rather than tearing down and hindering someone's work, speak positively if you can. In doing that, you aid the person in their work and help to bring out their better qualities. Pull away from the critical spirit that is energizing the world today and causing so much anxiety, especially in the younger generations who have grown up in this spirit of criticism. No one bears up well under constant criticism and even the constant eye of I'm watching you. Let the world tear itself apart if it must, but we believers need to step away from that as much as possible. In the end, it's not our battle, right? This is God's battle in the end. Again, we do stand for truth. We speak up for truth, but there's a way to do that that does not stoop to the level of the world, which is sinking like a stone in murky waters, A second thought I had while watching the coronation had to do with the wealth, a a caution about wealth. Now, let me be quick to say I don't think there's anything wrong with using a great display of wealth to crown a king. That seems good, actually. I mean, what else are all these gems and things for, other than this moment? (laughs) But seeing all of that, it just made me think about other ways wealth tends to accumulate, accumulate in certain places in a ruthless world. But it was actually amazing to see. The new king was given two staffs, one of which had a giant clear stone at the top. And I thought I recognized that, that it was a diamond, a particular diamond, but I wanted to look it up. So that staff is called the Sovereign Scepter with cross. And at the top of it sits the Cullinan One, also known as the Star of Africa, the largest uncolored cut diamond in the world, 530 carats. I mean, just imagine 530 carats. The coronation ceremony involved many, many pounds of gold and silver. The king's crown itself has nearly five pounds of solid gold in the frame. Altogether, the coronation regalia, you know, all the clothing and such, and the pieces contain more than 23,000 diamonds, sapphires, rubies, and emeralds. Beyond the Cullinan diamonds, there are more pieces of, of, that was actually cut off of a much larger diamond. Uh, We also saw the 104-carat Stuart sapphire and the 170-carat Black Princess ruby, which they actually found out is a spinel. I was uh, particularly transfixed by the enormous twin amethysts decorating the silk robes of the Archbishop of Canterbury. I really enjoyed seeing all these treasures. I mean, For some reason, I think I I love gems. Uh, but again, I'm not saying that in this situation there was anything wrong with this display of the best the minds and the miners of the world have to offer this is how the ceremonial head of state for 15 countries should be honored. But the caution here can be applied to other ways that wealth tends to accumulate in a few hands. In our ruthless world-based systems like capitalism, wealth tends to pile up in just a few hands. And this is not good for anyone. The Bible is not silent on this issue. And Bihar is ground zero for what the Torah has to say about it, right? The Shemitah, the the Jubilee year. The way of the world is that the wealthy tend to get wealthier. Once the scales tip in a certain direction, once certain people or certain nations or certain families, certain companies get the upper hand, they tend to do whatever it takes to keep their position at the top. And they now have the resources to stay on top. They usually simply consume every other competitor and the wealth gets more and more concentrated. We can maybe call this the survival of the fittest. It's very natural, but it's not a supernatural way to live. And the Torah is about living in a supernatural way. Again, it's simply not healthy that a handful of powerful companies control the wealth of a nation when the top 1% of Americans control one-third of the money, we've tipped into imbalance. It's especially unhealthy for those at the top, right? That's kind of corrosive for them. At the heart of God in his Torah is the idea that the bigger guys look out for the little guys and do what they can to lift up the little guys. I'm not talking about redistribution of wealth by force, which would be something like communism. I'm talking about a little less focus on making money at all costs and a little more focus on being there to pick up someone when they step wrong. Pick them up from a heart of love. I'm not talking about impersonal, unending handouts that end up crippling people. Sometimes real love is cutting off the spigot, but I'm saying that the wealthy shouldn't try to cling with all their might to the wealth. Be generous and let God decide the fate of your fortunes. He's just loaned you all of that money anyway, right? So just be generous and go where it takes you. I'm really not trying to make a political statement here, but there are some clear guidelines here in the Torah for how how wealth is to flow through a society and for making a way for people to start over, a real way for them to start over. And it seems to me that there's not a country on earth today that is coming near to it. The fact is that this portion clearly shows that near the heart of the Torah is a great reset built into the fabric of the universe called the Jubilee. And we see the same idea reflected in a smaller way in the Shemitah, when every seven years debts are forgiven. Our God is a God who treasures it when we are generous with others. Our God is a God who graciously lets us start over and who expects us to extend that grace to each other too. Now and then he takes out a giant cosmic eraser and he says, Okay, you stumbled a bit. Don't worry. This is not the end. I'm going to erase that. Let's start over. This is very different from credit card companies today that gouge people with 20% interest and ruin them if they can't pay. That's evil. But we've come to accept this evil in our society today and in the world in general. We don't bat an eyelash at these giant companies charging oftentimes vulnerable people, vulnerable people 20% interest. I think 150 years ago they couldn't imagine that people could get away with charging that kind of interest. It's not normal. Normal is what we see in the Torah, which is the standard, you know, that's the standard for us of normal is the Torah. Normal is what we're seeing in Portion Bihar, near the apex of the central book of the Torah. One of my points here today is to say that we need to question everything about what our world tells us is The normal way to function. We need to stay grounded in the Torah's version of reality, not become ground down by the world's way. Much of what happens in our world today is peric. It's ruthless and we need to distance ourselves from it because God is twisting it now and maybe even amplifying it so that it will collapse in on itself to expose evil for what it is. Now, more than ever, we need to separate from the world by being constantly drenched in the Torah perspective. So, let's switch our focus now to Bechukotai, the final two chapters of Vayikra. As we mentioned earlier, Bechukotai means in my chok, hukim, in my statutes, from the verse, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season. And the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. So the phrase is, if you walk in my statutes, you know, if, if you walk in my statutes, then all these blessings will come. So that's the subject of behukotai, the life of walking in God's ways. We see prominently in this portion the listing of blessings for following God's ways and the curses for not following them. Immediately we can see that this title speaks to the summit of a mountain. The, the rest and peace of Bihar are bound up with the walking in God's ways. It's two sides of one coin, that, that resting of Shemitah and Jubilee and walking in God's ways. The path is leading us to this life of successfully successfully walking in God's statutes because That is the only life of true rest. There's a way to walk in God's commandments that is not rest. Um, So we'll talk a little bit about that too. I'm talking about successfully walking in God's ways here. So there's much to say about how it is that walking in God's commandments is the way of life. So let me just list a few layers here. The commandments keep us from enslavement to the flesh. They are freedom from our bodies ruling over us. On another level, the commandments are a mirror for us that helps us to see our true nature, which is love for God and our neighbors. On another level, the commandments are the terms of a marriage contract. By them, we are joined to God, and through them, we even produce the fruit of that marriage. These are vessels for us to join with him together and produce fruit. The living word. And he's promising us life here. What do we need to do to have it? You know what do we need to do to enter into life? It's not that complicated. We need to trust him and walk according to the commandments, which is our true nature. Anyway, walk according to your true nature. If it's so easy, why do we fail so much? Well, it's usually fear. We're afraid that we will not be provided for if we don't do what the world does to provide for itself. So regarding fear, can I just encourage us to just don't be afraid to die, right? Look death in the face and say, bring it. I don't fear you. I will follow God. And if I die doing that, well, then so be it. You will not rule my life because fearing you, death, is no life at all. Right? I'm already dead if I'm fearing de- if, if I'm fearing death, then I'm already dead. That's my God, and I'm living according to death. So might as well just trust God, walk in his ways, and if you die, you die. You're gonna die either way. So <laughs> um, if fear isn't our biggest uh, driver away from God's commandments, then it's probably the pursuit of either glory or pleasure, both of which are lies. Worldly glory ends up in shame eventually. And so how many have we seen who have acquired worldly glory, like, choir, you know, they become famous in a sinful, fleshly kind of a way, and they end up in the pit of shame, right? Shame is what they get in the end, not glory. And worldly pleasure always turns out to be temporary. The end of that road is not pleasure, but slavery and sickness and everything unpleasurable. So beyond these thoughts about how walking with God in his ways is the only real life, the life at the summit, I've got two more quick points here. The first is that this word, bahukotai is hinting not at simply following God's commandments, but following them from a heart of love, right? We can It's not just so easy of following his commandments. That's not always going to be life-giving to us. It has to be following them from a heart of love, and we can see that in this word, behukotai. It's not enough to just follow the letter of the law. When we do that, that which is meant for life becomes death for us. If we offer a sacrifice out of a, a superficial kind of religiosity... That, God says, is abhorrent to him. It's not pleasure for him. He wants our hearts. So how do we see that in, in the word behukatai? It's in the idea that the root hok traces back to the root hakak, which means to engrave. Engraving goes deeper than mere writing. These aren't superficially understood and superficially performed statutes. I believe that this final portion in the book of Ayikra, this summit portion in the Holiness Code, is a reference to Torah written on the heart, engraved on the heart, engraved deeper down in the body than just up in the head. The commandments are simply not life to us. They're simply not life to us if they are not written on our hearts. And and the new New Covenant there says they are put in the gut and on the heart, engraved on the heart. So the real life we're aiming for, the real rest, comes when through the blood of Yeshua, the commandments are engraved on the heart, and we call that the new covenant. And we can see this heart of love expressed in the last chapter of B'hukotai, which deals with, vows to the Lord that go beyond the requirements of the Torah. These are extra commitments a person would take on to express their heart to God. So it's appropriate that this last chapter would be something that's making a provision for going beyond the letter of the law, going beyond the Torah. That's something we focused on in the winter when we did that part in the calendar. So, there might be something other than just love in someone's heart, though, and it, it might be fear, fear for God. And, and I'm not going to say that that's appropriate, inappropriate. Um, that's not bad. Fear of the Lord has an important foundational place in the life of the believer. And so as we kind of turn our attention to this last chapter, allowances are made for vows that we make beyond the Torah, whether that's just out of love or out of fear. So let me explain what I'm talking about there. You can imagine that if someone were deathly ill or in grave danger, so let's say a child is critically ill, the parent may make a vow to the Lord in that moment. That's a very desperate, vulnerable moment. And the parent might say, I make a vow to the Lord that if my child is spared, I will pay to the tabernacle an amount equivalent to the child's worth as a servant. Like the, the, the service that a child would be able to perform has a certain um, monetary value placed on it. And so a parent might make a value uh, uh, a vow in a moment like that. And so in that way, the child is dedicated to the Lord through that exchange of silver. Although the parent has not directly dedicated the child to the Lord. If you directly dedicate the child, you know, himself or herself to the Lord, that would mean the child would have to be brought to the temple. And we actually see that happen. You know, I don't know that that happened in history other than this case where Samuel's mother, Hannah, had dedicated him to the Lord. Lord, if you give him to me, right, she was childless at the time. And she said, if you give me this child, I'll dedicate him to you, and and she ends up taking him to the tabernacle when he's weaned. Well, we don't necessarily want to be doing that, right? There's only so many Samuels we can bring to the temple, right? and so provision is made. Provision is made to do something like that, but in a, in a different way. If that comes upon you in that moment, and um, and so an actual monetary value is placed on people um, because a vow has to be fulfilled you can't make a vow like that to the lord and not fulfill it it's not taken lightly and uh, values are also placed like that on animals on houses on land these are the things that are most expensive in a, in a person's life well there's more here to this topic of valuation being the final subject of Vayikra, more than the idea of these vows going beyond the letter of the law. It's just not, um, it's not only an expressing of the heart of love for God or fear. When we get to the end of it all, we are judged. In a way, we are valued, right? That judgment, that moment of judgment, there's a value that's placed on your life in that moment. And so at the very top of the mountain comes judgment. Uh, the judgment is kind of a step removed from life. And in the same way, this chapter is a little bit separate from the rest of Leviticus because the previous chapter, right, the last chapter is 27, 26 ends with kind of a strange verse that seems to separate out 27 from the rest. It says at the end of 26, these are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. Boom, end, period. These are the ends of the rules and statutes. Well, feels like the end, but then chapter 27 is tacked on. So I'm going to suggest that one way to think of chapter 27 is that it is like the judgment that is tacked on to our life. There does come a point when our life is weighed on the scale, when a calculation of our life is made, a weighing of what we have done what we have done for the Lord in our life, the time and money and effort we have dedicated to him and service to him. Our ultimate rescue is not dependent upon our works. We're not talking about an ultimate salvation here, but our reward is dependent on our works. It's kind of mind-boggling to us, but in the end, a judgment will be made that fixes us with a certain description, the fixing of the final form. We have a certain opportunity here in this life to acquire a form, a physical form, um, while we are in this shadowlands and have the great gift of free will. Will we acquire the form of a vessel yielded to him through which he can pour his spirit, or will we acquire a form that is blocked, circumcised, sorry, uncircumcised, such that the spirit cannot flow through us to do the work of the lord right circumcision is a blockage so if we are uncircumcised that blockage remains and we are are we that kind of vessel or are we the kind of vessel in which the spirit of life is enabled to flow through us will we be called a sheep or will we be called a goat a pronouncement will be rendered in the end and don't think that you're safe just because you seem to be doing better than most people around you. It doesn't work like that. Only God knows what he gave to each of us at the beginning of our journey, so we will be judged partly in accordance with that initial gift. To whom much is given, much is expected. This idea of ultimate judgment is alluded to in the Brit Hadashah reading in Matthew 16, where Yeshua says, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Right? So there's a connection there to the Brit Hadashah reading the New Testament. So let's turn our attention a bit more squarely onto Yeshua now. Yeshua is ultimately our judge, right? Who is going to judge us? Ultimately, it's going to be Yeshua who judges us. John 5.22 says... For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Yeshua lived on this earth like us in human form. He can fully identify with our struggles. And this gives us some comfort. But let's not relax too much in this knowledge that he will be our judge and the one judging us. He has charged us to pick up our cross and follow him. We're to imitate him. And he went to the cross. Are we living up to that? How are we doing? Are we going to the cross like he did? I think this point in the year is not the time to feel comfortable where we're at. I mean, we can never afford to do that. Knowing that Yeshua is our judge should, more than anything, impel us in this season to judge ourselves before we are judged by him, to judge ourselves while we yet have time to work on ourselves, to walk with God, to be led by Yeshua and doing the work of becoming the people he has made us to be. We don't want to get, we don't want to arrive at that moment of judgment and see disappointment on Yeshua's face. God forbid. Now is a time to ask for the light to pour in and illuminate the darkness within us once again so that we can go further up and further in, as C.S. Lewis put it. It's a time to read through these portions focused on holiness in Leviticus and say to God, speak to me through these verses about how I'm falling short of holiness and how you have planned to bring healing to my life in the seasons to come, so that I can be a better vessel for you for the glory of your name. As we talked about last time, we're in that part of the calendar where Yeshua was appearing to the disciples after his death. One of the things he did before departing was to open their minds to understanding the scriptures, the revelation of a new kind of light I think this act of Yeshua is connected in the calendar to the special day called Lag Omer, which we just recently come through, which is also connected to light and the start of a deeper understanding of scripture. It would seem this deeper understanding for the disciples was in particular areas that they needed in that moment, including how the scriptures foretold that he would suffer and die and rise on the third day, and how the gospel of repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed throughout the world. So specific ways that Yeshua was opening their minds to see the scripture in a new way. And he he needed to do that in that moment to secure them in their faith and to show them their mission regarding taking the gospel to the world. So we too can pray at this time, in this moment, that through the Holy Spirit in us, Yeshua would open up the scriptures to us in the ways that we need right now, especially in the ways that help us understand better our mission in this world. This is a good time to focus on mission and to look forward to the fresh empowerment for fulfilling that mission that is coming at Pentecost, right? The giving of the Spirit at that time for the mission that they had. That empowerment at Pentecost, at Shavuot, also comes through Yeshua. And so we can ask for clarification of that mission now, Um, another step of clarification. Yeshua will be our judge, but until that day, he is our leader, our king, our groom. Let's take full advantage of the time we have remaining to walk with him, to be shaped by him, before we reach that moment where our lives are weighed by him. Well, that's all for today. Thank you for listening. I'll post a link um, to an outline below the video. May God bless us to more and more fully enter into the rest of Yeshua. May more and more our lives be oriented toward that rest. May we be a people who hold themselves far away from the ruthlessness of the world and may we be a generous people. May God teach us to walk in his commandments with love, and may we rise up to be the people he has made us to be. And as we say upon finishing a book of the Torah, Chazak, Chazak, Vanit Chazek. be strong and be strong, and may we be strengthened. Shalom.